obviously continue in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in uh, chapter 20. We're going to try to wrap up our chapter this morning. And we've talked about how Matthew um, has divided his Gospel up into multiple sections. So um, he's, he's got different phrases and keywords that he's used to take this entire long letter or book or volume and split it up into smaller chunks so you know what to expect. And uh, I've kind of put that together on the screen here just to remind you. Um, in chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 1 through 416, is this introduction. It's the genealogy of Jesus from his childhood through his baptism and temptation. Uh, these were the years prior to his public ministry, prior to him actually going out and, and doing teaching and miracles. Um, it ended... This section, chapter 4, ends with um, Jesus overcoming temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, or the, the Satan, the tempter, uh, in the wilderness. And John the Baptist gets arrested. And then right after that, we, we read in chapter 4, verse 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So that phrase, from then on, is one of those transitional phrases that happens twice in the book to then introduce a new section. So chapter 4, verse 17, began a new section that goes through chapter 16, verse 20. And it's about Jesus' teaching. It begins, chapter 4, verse 17, begins with, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven was near. So that from then on, Jesus began to preach. And we have in this section, chapter 4 through chapter 16, we have all these miracles that he's doing and all these teachings. You have the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of teachings about what the kingdom of heaven is like and how to live as a, as a, a child in the kingdom. At the end of that section, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, other people say that you're a prophet. Maybe you're one of the old prophets come back or just a great prophet now. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter just jumps in and says, well, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, you're right, but don't tell anybody. They were just commanded not to tell anybody that he was the disciple, that he was the Messiah. And then in chapter 16, verse 21, we start our next section. From then on, the other key phrase there, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. From then on, starting chapter 16, verse 21, in, in our study, in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, from then on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to be abused, that he was going to be killed, and then he was going to raise from the dead on the third day. So the first time that Jesus predicted his death was chapter 16, verse 21. And it's not the last time. Um, later, Peter and James and John are going to have an encounter with Jesus on a, on a mountain. They go up with Jesus on a mountain and they see Yahweh, right? They see God appear to them. And they see Moses and Elijah appear to them. And as they're coming down from the mountain, we read this. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision of the Son of Man until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, well, why then did the scribes say Elijah must come first? Well, Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. 
and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer in their hands. Now, this is the second clear pronouncement of his death. It's only to, as far as we know, it's only to Peter, James, and John as they're coming down from the mountain because he's going to then connect with the rest of the disciples. And a couple of verses later in chapter 17, as they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. So it's the third declaration, but the second one to the whole group of disciples. Okay, that, that Jesus is going to die, he's going to be um, killed, and then rise from the dead three days later. This morning, we pick up with this theme of the passion of Christ. We pick up with this idea and this concept and this teaching that Jesus had, that he was going to be killed and then rise from the dead. And in chapter 20, starting in verse 17, is where we're going to pick up this morning. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised. So this is our fourth prediction and the third one to the whole group of disciples. And actually, this is the first time that Matthew actually calls them the 12. This is like the first time they're designated as the 12 disciples uh, in Matthew's gospel. We started this major movement of the gospel in chapter 16 with Jesus saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be abused, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise from the dead. We end this section as they're approaching Jerusalem at the end of chapter 20 with Jesus reminding them of the exact same message. And the closer we get to Jerusalem, the more details we get about what's going to happen. It starts out kind of vague, and then more and more is revealed as they get closer. It's kind of like it's unfolding as they're traveling down the road. They started... We're going to go to Jerusalem, and they weren't there yet, and they got some details. Then they started on their journey, and they got a little bit more. And now, they're really close to Jerusalem, and Jesus is unfolding a whole lot more detail of what's going to take place. In typical Matthew fashion, our passage here is very short, concise, leaves out a lot of details um, that you think should be in there. And he just says it and moves on, and you're like, but how does that go with anything else? Why is that in here? Now, I've brought up several times in Matthew, um, when Matthew repeats something multiple times, what are we supposed to be doing as the listeners or as the readers? Paying attention to what? Finding the similarities, but even more than the similarities, finding what the difference is, right? So when it's repeated, you're going to find that there's a reason it's being repeated, and often one little detail will come out in the repetition that wasn't there in the previous iteration of it. And it kind of unfolds a little bit more of the picture of what's going to take place. And this is exactly what Matthew has done. So I'm going to walk you through an exercise. I'm sorry, it's going to feel a little bit like a classroom for a minute. Um, but it's really, I think it's awesome to watch the way that, that Matthew um, is unfolding this for us. So we start out in Matthew 16, 21. And we have these details that he brings out. They're in all of the different accounts of what's going to happen to Jesus, all three of these public accounts with the twelve. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and raised from the third day. Raised on the third day. So he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be mistreated, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise on the third day. 
That's where we started in chapter 16. In chapter 17, we have all those same details, but there's something else brought up in here. Anybody? What's different? What's added to this one that wasn't in the last one? I heard it. Who said it? Oh, come on, I heard it from over. I thought I heard it over from this side. Was that my wife? Is Connor feeding you the answers over there? What, what's the difference? I can't hear you. He's going to be betrayed. Yeah, there's a significant fact in this one that's missing in the others. Not only is he going to go to Jerusalem and be abused by the religious leaders and be killed and rise from, on the third day, but he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Betrayal is something that only happens from someone that's on the inside. You can't be betrayed by an outsider. You're only betrayed by those in the group. So we have this new detail that kind of adds a tension to the disciples' relationships, doesn't it? One of you, is, or more, we don't know, is going to betray Jesus into the hands of men who are going to abuse him and kill him. Now this topic is going to come up again a little bit later once we get to Jerusalem. You're going to see that this is really going to play out. And then we get to our passage, um, so it was Jesus was betrayed was the extra one. Then we get to our passage in chapter 20, uh, verses 18 and 19. What's different in this one? We have the same four elements, going to Jerusalem, being mistreated, being killed, and rising on the third day. But what are some other things that are brought into this one? What's that? Handed over to the chief priests. Yeah, and what are they going to do? Condemn him to death. So he's going to be on trial and, and sentenced to death. That's a legal thing. By the Sanhedrin, which is the religious council um, in Jerusalem. What else do you have? He's going to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. That's pretty specific. So far it's been, he's going to be killed, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise on the third day. Now he's saying, listen, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, which is being whipped, and I'm going to be crucified. A very specific way that he's, he's telling him right now, this is how I'm going to die. What else, what's the other detail in here? Who's going to do the mocking, flogging, and crucifying? The Gentiles. It's the first time we have them introduced. The non-Jews, which in this case, the only people group that's going to have anything, any ability or authority to mock, flog, or crucify somebody would be the Romans. So what Jesus has opened up in this passage is that he's going to be condemned by the religious council and sentenced to death, handed over and killed, or mocked, flogged, and crucified by the Gentiles, by the Romans. So now they're in play. That's a lot of detail. It's a lot of detail that he brings up. So now we have a pretty complete picture. If we put all of them together, it kind of looks like this. Okay? They're going to go to Jerusalem. Jesus will be, be betrayed by one of the disciples. He'll be mistreated by the religious leadership. He'll be condemned to death by the Sanhedrin. The Romans will mock Jesus. The Romans will flog Jesus. The Romans will crucify Jesus. And three days later, after he dies, he will be raised from the dead. After he dies, three days later, he'll be raised from the dead. So what we can see from these teachings is Jesus knew for quite some time exactly what was going to happen. 
He didn't give all the details up front. Maybe they were revealed to him as he went along, but he's God. I, I kind of think he knew all along what the plan was. My theology. And yet, he still chose to come, to live, and to be obedient to the will of the Father, knowing that this is what was going to happen. Knowing that this is how he was going to be treated. I can't think of a more amazing example of grace than that. I may walk into a relationship and I may get abused by somebody and then offer grace. But imagine walking into a relationship, being told up front, you're going to go into this relationship and they're going to abuse you. They're going to discredit you. They're going to, they're going to mock you. They're going to whip you. They're going to kill you. And then saying, yeah, I'll do it. I'll gladly do it. What an amazing love that the Father had for us and that Jesus had for us, that he would come down to earth to do that. He knew very well what was going on and what was going to happen. And now the disciples know too. I don't think they understand all of that's going to happen, even though it's been explained several times. Because when it starts to play out, they're going to scatter. And afterwards, they're going to say, well, well what just happened? And Jesus is going to have to explain the whole thing to them again. Because this is just unfathomable that this would happen to such a good person, let alone to the Son of God. So Matthew gives us this little nugget at the end of this teaching. As they're just about to enter in Jerusalem, he said, Jesus gives the rest of these details. Listen, if you, he says, see, look, look, we're going up to Jerusalem. We've been traveling for days, days and days. We're almost there. When we get there, let me tell you what's going to happen. The religious leaders, yeah, they're going to come after me. They're going to put me on trial. They're going to condemn me to death, hand me over to the Romans. The Romans are going to flog me, mock me, crucify me. But on the third day, I will rise again. I don't think Jesus could have prepared them more for what was about to happen. But it's still going to shock them. And then Matthew just moves on to the next passage. He's like, okay, Jesus told them this. And they just moved on. After this teaching, we start the next sentence with the word then. In chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons. Then, we learned in Matthew, doesn't always mean like right after. Okay? Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples about the things that were going to take place, pulled them aside from the crowds. And they were alone. And then we pick up in chapter 20, verses uh, 20 through 28. And two of the disciples are approaching Jesus with their mom. How many of you think that's a good idea? You want a leader to pay attention to you, so you take mom with you. <laughs> I have to laugh because um, part of my job outside of the church is, is to actually hire people for our printing company. And I've been to job fairs, and I'll never forget this one job fair where there was this mom dragging her daughter through the job fair. The daughter's in like pajama bottoms and a loose sweatshirt. And there's three guys tagging along behind the girl because they're all like just gone on her or whatever. And mom's making her go through the job fair. And, and he, she's talking to me about the jobs we have and wants to know if, if I think her daughter would be a good candidate. And I'm thinking, probably not. 
right? You can fill out an application, please do. I'll probably file it away, right? It's just not impressive, but the disciples are going to bring mom along because hopefully mom will have a little more pull and be able to bring up this topic that's kind of awkward um, and make it a little bit smoother of a transition. So let's read in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him, Jesus, with her sons, and she knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Well, promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We are able, they said to him. Well, he told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom the uh, has been prepared by my father. Now, when the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. They, Jesus called them over and he said, you know that the rulers of Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, as an aside on this passage, there is a tremendous theme in this that appears in this section, which is the cup. We're not going there today. I believe we'll be geeking out on that in the near future um, as we get to the garden, okay? So hold that thought on the cup. I'm not gonna dive into it today, but if you're looking for a, a really cool theme to research in the meantime, that's a great one. Um, in our passage, there's a woman who approaches Jesus and kneels before him. Now we don't get her name. <laughs> we, don't, we just get her relationships, right? She's the mother of Zebedee's sons. There's a lot of easier ways to say that, isn't it? Zebedee's mom. No, she's the mother, uh, not Zebedee's mom, James and John's mom. It's, instead, it's the mother of Zebedee's sons. Like, okay, that's kind of different. And she approached, we never get her name at all. Um, but we get the impression that she's being pushed to go approach Jesus. And she wants to have Jesus show special favor to her two sons, James and John. Now, they were two of the first disciples called. They were in that original group. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But it seems like an odd request. I mean, Jesus just told them not long ago, the disciples not long ago, that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And now all of a sudden, two of the disciples are bringing mom along and having mom ask if they can sit on the right and left of Jesus when he takes his throne. Why would they even think that? We have to remember that Jesus actually told them about thrones not long before this. And he actually planted the idea in their heads. Matthew chapter 19, just before this, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that must have just stuck in their head, and they're like, Oh, the renewal of all things. We're almost in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of kings right? It's the city of David. And we have the son of David who's going to be sitting on a throne and he's taught. 
talk about his kingdom, we must be getting close. And Jesus said, we're going to be sitting on 12 thrones with him, judging the nations. There's the, the, we're getting close. Stuff's finally happening. After, after three years of hanging out in Galilee and in the wilderness, we're getting somewhere. The excitement must have been tremendous. As a matter of fact, Luke actually gives us insight that this is what they were thinking. I'm not just making this up. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. As the disciples were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. I mean, they're excited. He's, they're listening and they're excited. I, I'm taking that very much out of context of the rest of the, of the passage that it's in to show the point that they were expecting the kingdom of God to appear right away as they were approaching Jerusalem. They're excited. It's happening. We're, we're all going to be on thrones. We're not going to be in the wilderness anymore. We're going to be kings with Jesus, ruling with Jesus. Now, while this passage demonstrates um, the disciples' continued lack of understanding about the kingdom of God, um, I also believe it possibly demonstrates a really cool positive thing about them. Three times Jesus mentioned they were going to Jerusalem, four to a couple of the disciples, and what did he say would happen there? He was going to be betrayed, abused, put on trial, mocked, flogged, crucified, killed, and then rise again. So he's already mentioned that he's going to be killed. Either A, they thought that was going to happen much, much later and they were going to rule for a while first, or B, they really understood that when Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, he was going to rise from the dead. Similar to the way Abraham believed that if he offered up Isaac, that God could raise Isaac from the dead, that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. Which means that either way, Jesus is going to be enthroned, which is true. And if you're thinking about theology, that makes sense. But I don't think they were concerned about theology. This was not a theological encounter. This was a power play by two of the disciples to try to get the prime thrones. This was strictly a power play. The talk of thrones and kingdoms and approaching Jerusalem, the city, the city of, of David, where the temple is and where kings ruled, where the greatest kingdom of all time under the power of Solomon, the united kingdom of Israel, once existed, and where the promise that a son of David, a branch from the shoot, from the, the roots of, of Jesse, would come and take up rule. We're getting there. It's getting close. The fact that the other disciples are upset kind of tells you that they wanted the same thing. And James and John realized if we wait till we get to Jerusalem, it may be too late. If we want to get our place next to Jesus while we're ruling, we better act before the chaos of Jerusalem and before the other disciples do it. So they grab mom and they have mom approach Jesus. Now some people believe that, that James and John's mom is a relative of Jesus and that's why he asked. I was not able to, to get that as a definitive um, answer through my studies. Why they picked mom? Maybe they thought that it would come across easier to Jesus or he would have more compassion on her. Um, I don't know. We really don't know. But we, we do know 
is that they're the first ones to make a power move. And they seem to understand, even though they don't understand the kingdom, they seem to understand the concept of thrones and power. <laughs> but they also seem to forget the three different times that Jesus taught that the first must be last and the last must be first. And about serving one another. Um, not only is this the third time the tw- that the disciples have heard the prediction of his death and resurrection, it's the third time they're, they're taught about the last being first and the first being last. There's, there's a relationship here. It's this upside-down kingdom. However, this one has another little bit of a twist. Remember, each time these passages are brought up, there's something that's kind of new to it. This is the third time Jesus talks about the first being last and the last being first. This time, there's two little twists to it. In verse 28, um, Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is linking back, and he says that he is the servant and the slave. And you, as disciples, must be slaves like Jesus. Well, Jesus hasn't exactly fulfilled his role of the ultimate slave yet, the ultimate servant, because he hasn't given his life yet. So this is kind of a preemptive teaching. You must be like me. You must remember that to become great, you must become a servant, and to become great, you must become a slave. First twist... Slaves have no rights, no power, no authority, no seat at the table. If you want to become great, you must become like a slave. He picked the lowest of positions with the least amount of influence and power. He said, that's what you must be like. And the second twist, just like I am, Jesus says. You must become like Jesus. You remember those bracelets, WWJD, right? It's actually a really cool concept just got way overplayed. But Jesus said to his disciples, you need to be like me. You need to be a slave like I will. Now, they don't understand it yet, but they will get it. Jesus is the ultimate example of the first becoming last. The king of heaven leaving his throne in heaven to become human. Giving up his rule and his authority to become obedient. Giving up the life that he had to suffer death for us. Being rejected by the people who were supposed to praise him, and then being killed by those who are not even part of his family. And even though he was willing to become least, God the Father is going to make him the most. And I think that there's one passage in the New Testament that really brings this out that I want us to read together. Jesus is is talking about something that's going to happen. For his disciples, it hasn't happened yet. But after it happens, it's like the light bulb goes off. And the the apostles get it, and the apostle Paul gets it too. And I think the best illustration of this is found in his letter to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It says this, Adopt this same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, he starts right out by saying, you need to be like Jesus, which is what Jesus was saying in our previous passage, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or to hold on to. Instead, he emptied himself, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you notice who put Jesus in the exalted position? The Father. When Jesus answered James and John, said, are you able to drink this cup? And they said, yes. Well, you will, but I can't give you that position. The position of honor only comes from the Father. It's the one whom the Father has set aside. But you have Jesus humbling himself, becoming a servant, taking on humanity, and dying a death on a cross, even though he did nothing wrong. This is the example of Jesus that he's giving us in chapter 20. When he says, you must become the servant of all and you must become the slave of all, just as the Son of Man is. Just as I am, Jesus said. And they don't understand it all yet, but they will. Jesus said that he came not only to do that, but to be the ransom. Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And he says, and I'm going to do it out of obedience to the Father so that I can ransom the many, which we read about in Isaiah 53 this morning. He came to ransom many. This is the only time that Jesus uses this version of the word ransom. It talks about the purpose of why he came. It's a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission for all of mankind. So Jesus' twist is that the disciples need to be like him, or at least like he will be. And they'll see that when they get to Jerusalem. I think there's a, a lesson here for all of us, and that is that servanthood must exemplify every Christian leader, and indeed every Christian. We'll never be Christ-like until we serve rather than manipulate others to serve us. Because isn't that really what we're doing? Either we're going to serve others or we're going to try to get others to serve us. But you have to think about it this way. Because of the impact of God's love in our lives, we can now love. And because of the transforming impact of God's grace in our lives, we can now serve. So after this kingdom teaching, we get our last part of this chapter and this pre-Jerusalem segment of Matthew's Gospel. Again, he just moves right on to the next thing. And as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And there were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Well, the crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So Jesus stopped, called to them, and said, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said to him, Open our eyes. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they could see, and they followed him. So there was a large crowd going to Jerusalem, including those from Galilee, where he'd come from. What were they going to Jerusalem for? There's a celebration that's going to take place very soon, the Passover. So you would have people from all the different towns and villages traveling up to Jerusalem for the Passover, large crowds. Um, so Jesus had excused himself from this crowd to go speak to the disciples privately in, when we started um, in chapter, seven, chapter 20, verse 17. But this passage tells us now that we're in Jericho. Now Jericho is the last stop before Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles from Jerusalem. So they've come from Galilee all the way down to about 15 miles out of Jerusalem. And that's not a short distance on foot, but it's still closer than they were in Galilee. 
Here's kind of a, a picture of where they were. They started way up in Capernaum in the area of Galilee. They went through all of that, and now they're down, way down there at the bottom, Jericho, almost to Jerusalem. That's a lot of travel. It's a lot of alone time, a lot of time with disciples. And as the mob heads toward Jerusalem, there's some beggars calling out. Now, with all these travelers to Jerusalem for the Passover, it's prime time for beggars, right? Think about it. You're going to a feast, and as a general rule, people would be more generous heading toward a feast. We're about to celebrate God's graciousness to us. I should be gracious like God is gracious. And then you just have these throngs of people going down the roads. I can imagine the closer you got to Jerusalem, the more people there were just lining the sides of the road, looking for some kind of mercy or handout, right? It had to get annoying, honestly, especially if they're all calling out, right? Have you ever been to a large city where you're walking on the sidewalk and there's people that are, that are begging for money? Do you find that um, something you look forward to? For some people, like these blind people, it was their only livelihood. The only op- option that they had was to beg and to count on people's generosity. So apparently, word of Jesus and his ability to heal and to give sight to the blind had spread to this region, even though Jesus um, hadn't, we haven't recorded him being down in Jericho doing miracles previously. And the blind men, um, they couldn't see Jesus coming, obviously. They had no idea how close he was. So they did the one thing that they could. They just started calling out, Jesus, we're over here! You want to get their attention, right? And the crowds are pretty annoyed by it. They're like, would you be quiet already? So what do they do? They get louder. Now, how many of you would do that too? Let's be honest, right? If somebody, if you're, you're trying to get Jesus' attention, everybody's telling you, be quiet. How many of you would just be like, just get louder? I know I would. I'm, I'm a little belligerent that way. I don't know about you guys. So they tried to stifle them. They just keep getting louder. Uh, we're not told why the crowds wanted them to be quiet. Maybe they were just an annoyance. Uh, maybe they thought Jesus shouldn't be bothered by beggars. That would sound familiar. Isn't that what the disciples were saying about the children coming to Jesus? Keep the children away. Jesus is too busy. He's got more important things to do. And Jesus says, well, let them come. Now here's these beggars calling out from the side of the, of the road, trying to get Jesus' attention. And they're like, just be quiet. Give the teacher a break already. In any case, we have the marginalized or the least of these calling out to Jesus. And the blind beggars refer to Jesus as Lord three times and as Son of David twice. Um, I'm not going to speak too much about the Son of David concept because we're going to be nerding out on that in the near future as well. Um, The only thing I'll say is that it's an acknowledgement of, of Jesus as the promised one who would sit on the throne of David, the chosen one, the Messiah. So in their acknowledging him as the son of David, they're acknowledging him as a royal heir to the throne of David and the one chosen by God, the Messiah. There's only three times in Matthew's gospel where people acknowledge Jesus as the son of David. The first one was a blind man, uh, or the blind men in chapter 9, verse 27. Two other blind people recognized Jesus as the son of David. A Canaanite woman in chapter 15, verse 22, recognized Jesus as the son of David. And these blind men recognized Jesus as the son of David. Isn't it ironic that only the blind and the non-Jews can recognize Jesus as the son of David? I love the way that that plays out. It's like, 
Yeah. Yeah, the Jews didn't see it. Matter of fact, they're going to kill him and they're going to put him on trial and sentence him to death. But these blind people see quite clearly that he's the son of David. So Jesus responds to the blind men with the same response that he had for James and John's mom. What do you want? And, and I think that we shouldn't envision this as consternation, as, as like being upset, but more in, in compassion. And Because that phrase, what do you want, I can hear myself saying that phrase in a couple different tones, can't you? What do you want? Have you ever, parents ever say that to your kids that way? Or, what do you want? <laughs> it's one of those phrases like fine that can be taken 18 different ways depending upon how you say it, right? But Jesus calls these blind men to him. As they're calling out to him, he says, call them, get them over here. And he says, what do you want? And I think it was an honest and sincere question because we find out that he was moved by compassion. The blind men were quick to tell Jesus what they wanted. There's one thing that they couldn't have from anybody else, and that was to see. I think the fact that they asked for this and not for some other smaller thing proves that they thought Jesus could actually do it. Jesus says, what do you want? He said, we want to see. Can you do that? And Jesus was moved with compassion. Fourth time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus was moved with compassion. You seeing the repetition here? <laughs> three times this, four times this, three times this, two times that. Matthew continues to bring home this point because he wants us to understand the heart of Jesus. The other three are Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, 14, 14, and 15, 32. The first time Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they didn't have any spiritual leadership. The scribes and Pharisees were not following God, and that was their spiritual leadership, and he had compassion on them because they had no spiritual leaders. The second time is when the crowds kept coming to him because they needed healing. And he looked at them and all their needs, their physical needs, and he had compassion on them, and he healed them, and he cast out their demons. The third time, they lacked food. They were out there listening to him teaching, and they didn't have food, and so Jesus said, I feel compassion on these people. Let's give them food. And he performed a miracle of feeding the 5,000 and also the 4,000. Um, twice, once with the Jews and once with the Gentiles. This time, <laughs> Jesus' compassion is not on the crowd. As a matter of fact, the crowd lacks compassion, <laughs> which is also kind of ironic. Jesus showed compassion to the crowds three different times, but the crowd has no compassion whatsoever on these blind people. Jesus has compassion on two individuals, these two blind men. These two blind men represent the least in the kingdom of heaven. The first will be last and the last will be first. They had no way to provide for themselves. They relied upon others for pretty much everything, including even getting to the road to beg. How do you get to the road to beg if you can't see? They were the children that we read about earlier, um, those with no position or status in society. And just as the, we, we talked about the rich young ruler in that he would be seen as having the blessing of God because he had riches, often, Blindness would have been perceived as a punishment from God. Check out John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 on your own for that. 
these men would be perceived as either sinners or the cause of somebody else's sin, being punished by God for something somebody had done. And any pious Jew would not want anything to do with them, probably. So what did Jesus do? He stops, he calls them, he talks to them, and he touches them. And they're immediately healed, and they follow Jesus. That's all you get at the end. And they were healed, and they followed Jesus, which is unlike the rich young ruler. Are you seeing the contrast? It's the same lesson played out in a different detail with a couple new facts here. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus still does today. Um, let me give you a quote here. Uh, Being blind is a characteristic of all who are not disciples. The opponents of Jesus, the Jewish leaders, are blind. Blindness, though, need not be a permanent condition. Jesus' presence and power to save extends to those who desire to see. Jesus, we want to see. You have the least of the kingdom humbling themselves before Jesus and trusting that he is who he says he is. As our chapter closes with Jerusalem off in the distance, it's almost in view, not quite. It's about 15 miles away and about 3,700 feet of elevation gain. Jericho is about 1,200 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level, so about 3,700 feet of elevation gain. So when he says we're going up to Jerusalem, they're literally going up to Jerusalem. Not just a phrase, they're literally going up to Jerusalem. So what was Jesus trying to teach them? Because the next passage we get into that David's going to dive into is going to be Jesus entering into Jerusalem. We started our section in chapter 16 with Jesus saying he was going to die and rise from the dead. And we end this section just before Jerusalem with Jesus saying he's going to die and rise from the dead. What was Jesus trying to teach his disciples in this section to prepare them for what was going to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die as a ransom, and as such was a model of servanthood that must be emulated by all who live in his kingdom. We are to become servants of others, not just the wealthy, but even the ones who society casts out and looks over. And those that acknowledge Jesus as the one sent from God are the ones that truly see and the ones that are true disciples. For us today, uh, it's a done reality that Jesus paid a ransom so that if we humble ourselves and call on him, our eyes will be open to who he is so that we can follow him to new life and to victory over sin and death. Even to rule and reign with him over all of creation. It's a beautiful picture lived out in three stories, in three teachings of the reality of what Christ came to do for us on the cross. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again, for your love and your grace. Thank you for being willing to sacrifice so much to ransom us. I pray that you would give us the humility to be willing to, to trust you for our provision, trust you for our ransom, trust you for our lives. And Father, help us to have the kingdom attitude and the heart of being willing to serve and not looking to be served. Father, there's so many 
so many things today that are telling us what we deserve and what's ours and what rights we have. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus who gave up all of his rights to serve and to die for us. Help us to have that same attitude toward each other and even toward those that don't know you, especially toward those that don't know you, that we can show them your love and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.